Our dear Father in heaven, we thank you so much for loving us. We thank you, Father, for this opportunity to gather together and study your word. And I thank you for a chance again to speak to these good people. We thank you for J.D. and his ministry here. Don't mean to any way usurp what he does and the good work that he does, but I thank you for this chance that we can share your word again. In Jesus' name, amen. Once, long ago and far away, there was a little lamb. It was a pretty little thing, all white and fluffy and soft, would run and play all day and jump this way and then that way and then straight up as only a little lamb can. Every morning, a little shepherd boy, the son of the lamb's owner, would lead the little lamb along with several others out to a grassy hillside where they would play and graze and lie in the sun. Then in the evening, they would return to the shepherd's tents, the boy to eat his supper and go to bed, the lambs to lie inside a little fence until the next day when they did it all over again. One morning, early, before they were to go out to the grassy hillside, the owner of the lambs came out to the little fence. He looked each lamb over and muttered to himself, I need one that's perfect. Finally, he selected the fluffy little lamb so soft and white. He put the lamb across his shoulders, called his family to him, and they started out. The little lamb did not know where they were going. They walked a long time before they stopped for the night. They tied a string around the lamb's ankle, tethered it to a big rock while the family lay down and slept under the stars. Early the next morning, they started out again. They'd not gone far when they came up over the brow of a large hill and there below them, gleaming in the sunlight, was the fanciest, shiniest, most beautiful building you could ever imagine. There the man, still carrying the lamb, left his wife and son in one of the outer courts, went through a gate in a low wall, into an area closer to the shiny building. He was met by a man wearing a long robe and a fancy turban. And the priest, the man in the long robe, examined the lamb very carefully. Then, after talking to the man for a few moments, the priest began a high sing-song chant. At the peak of his chant, he grasped the lamb by the hind feet and lifted him high. And then as the man watched and the little boy and his mother watched it some distance away, the priest reached into his robe, pulled out a long, sharp knife, slit the lamb's throat, and the blood ran down into the bowl and out over the altar. And how many millions of times that happened over 1,500 years of sacrifices under the Old Testament law, no one could ever guess. Once in eternity, there was the Son of God, one with God himself. He was the word that brought light in the beginning. Through him, the world came into being and teemed with life. And with a mind and spirit fashioned after his likeness, man was made. He, the Son, sang with the angels, and by his word of power, the whole universe was held together, each planet exactly in its orbit, each galaxy shining with just the number of stars he counted out for it. Each revolution of his earth varied not half a second simply because he willed it so. Then, one day, the man and woman created in God's likeness sinned. They rebelled against plain instructions, and into the beautiful world created by the Father and Son came the stink and fear of death. Weeds grew up to choke the beautiful flowers. Hatred sprouted in the hearts of men, and one man murdered his brother. The men and the women took the thrilling beauty of their bodies, the joyous sensations of sexuality God had made, and began to flaunt them and make sex cheap and to use one another for selfishness and sport. And they cheated one another, and they lied, and they stole, and destroyed the beauty that the Father and the Son had made. <clears throat> And the father said, my son, one of these days you will have to go to earth and show people that we love them still and that they, can be, that they can be forgiven. But you know they will reject and kill you. Yes, I know, said the son. When the time is right, I'm ready to go. So the time came and the son came and he grew up and began to preach and he gathered quite a following. But then at the peak of his preaching, he was chased down by the trickery of some men in long robes and fancy turbans. 
And these priests, the men in the long robes, turned him over to the cruel Romans. And then on a hill outside the city, looking back toward that beautiful shiny building and all the blood of thousands of lambs that had been sacrificed there the day before, there on a hill, they lifted the Son of God toward heaven on a cross and held him there with ropes and nails. And as he hung there, they slit his side and the warm blood flowed down the cross and ran into the rocks into the earth he had made. And the sun in the sky refused to shine on the death of the sun on the cross. Once, 65 years or so later, there was an old man named John. <clears throat> John sat alone. In exile on the island of Patmos, off the coast of Asia Minor, as a young man he had offered many sacrifices on that altar in Jerusalem, many, many lambs. Before he was 30 or so, he became one of Jesus' closest followers. When Jesus was crucified, John was among those who stood at the foot of the cross and watched him die. Now he is old and alone, exiled from all his friends because of his faith in the Son of God. And as he sat one Lord's day and contemplated all he had seen and known in his long life, a heavenly messenger came and said, Come up here, and I will show you what will take place after this. If you want to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4 and 5, Revelation chapters 4 and 5, we'll stay there most of the morning, okay? I'm going to read just verses 2 and two through 4 of chapter 4, and then we're going to skip to chapter 5 and read through the 14th verse. At once I was in the Spirit, and there was before me a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. Now chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousands times ten thousands. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature under heaven, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Now, nearly 2,000 years later, men are intensely interested in the book that John wrote and all that he saw. And preachers take the book. And from it, they try to terrify their hearers or threaten them or entice them with pictures of pie in the sky by and by. You ever notice, J.D., you ever notice the kinds of sermons that people preach from Revelation? There's the identify the beast sermon. You know, 
can't tell you that. As long as I preach the multiple options that fall in there, but anyway. The preacher tries to tell you what all the symbols stand for, usually concluding that we will enter the last day sometime week after next. <laughs> then there's the won't heaven be great kind of sermon, you know. Streets of gold, gates of pearl, I want a mansion just over the hilltop. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not knocking heaven, please. Far from it. I think we need more sermons about our eternal hope and not less. But sometimes, sometimes, such sermons just appeal to our selfishness and miss the point of Revelation entirely. Revelation is also used to lambast the people. You know, the if you can't wash them, skin them kind of sermons. And for sure, condemnation of lukewarmness and other dangers is there. And warnings of eight sheet of oil, hell, like the old fire and brimstone preacher, it's there too. But that still misses the mark. To me, many of the studies of Revelation are a symptom of the basic problem that plagues us all. Selfies. My word. Anyway, who's going to mess up our world in the end? What terrible tribulation will I have to go through? Look, people, we are not as we ought. Well, that's true. What's in it for me? Can I make it to heaven? Some people aren't even sure they want to go there because there won't be any sex or money. But you know, the kind of sermons I like from Revelation are the worship the lamb kind. And that's the kind I like to hear. And there's a real advantage to going through this book and just reading the songs that are there. J.D., try that for preaching Revelation sometime. Skip all the other stuff and just the songs about the Lamb. There's 10 or 12 statements about the Lamb from this one in the beginning to the wedding of the Lamb at the end, which is really fun. You know, that's the kind I like to hear. It's the kind I like to preach, not just because they're more fun. If you can't wash them, skin them kind of fun, too, if you've got a fast car and an escape route plan. But it's the worship the Lamb sermons that we need, not only because that's the main point of the book, but because that should be the point of our lives. Our whole existence should be centered on the Lamb of God because the Lamb of God is worthy of everything that's good. He alone is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. If we go back to that text where we were. In chapter 5, just verses 6 through 12, I saw a lamb looking at it as if it had been stain, slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He tame, came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb. Each had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. Because you were slain, with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Worthy is the Lamb. Only the Lamb, the Lamb alone, is worthy to open the scroll. If you look through the next few chapters of the book, you'll see all kinds of horrible things happening when this book is opened, there's riders on horseback, and that's not a fun trail ride either. There's plagues and wars and famine and sword and earthquakes and flood and blood on birth, oh, on, in both the earth and the sky. And men argue at length about whether or not their symbols or were really happened that way and forget the whole point of the vision, the lamb and the scroll. Well, how important can that be? A lamb sitting on the throne peeling back seals. You know, that's no biggie. Let's get on to the fun stuff, you know. What we don't understand is that a scroll with seals was a very important official document in those days. If an emperor, or any government official for that matter, 
wanted to send an official message or give official orders, sometimes secret orders, he would have them written on a scroll, a roll of specially prepared leather usually for official pronouncements called parchment. And then he would put a gob of sealing wax on the edge and he'd take his signet ring and he'd put it in the sealing wax and then the wax would harden. Not soft wax like a candle, it would get hard, okay? Only the person authorized to break the seal and open the scroll could do so without dire consequences. Spell, spell dire, D-Y-I-N-G, consequences. So who can and who is worthy to open the scroll are the same thing. Can doesn't mean physical strength. It means authority here. The lamb can open the scroll, the seals, because he has triumph. And he is identified here as the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, two Old Testament symbols symbolic of the Messiah or Christ. We talked about that in the first message I did here the first of the month. The Messiah was God's promised prophet, priest, and king, the one with the ultimate authority. So the lamb, the symbol here of the Lord Jesus, is authorized or able or has the right to open each seal. But what does all that mean anyway? All those arguments about whether or not they're symbols or they really happen that way, what does that all mean to me? Personally, I think many of those visions are symbolic. But they may also be spiritual realities with consequences in our world that do not correspond exactly to the things John saw. I have a theory on this that may clarify some of Revelation for you, but it may again just muddy the waters, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. You knew I would. In Daniel 10, Daniel had a vision that scared him. I mean, it scared him a bunch. He passed out because of it. And then he asked God for an explanation, and an angel was sent to explain it. Three weeks later, the angel arrives. You know what the angel says? Sorry I'm late. I left heaven when you asked for the explanation, but, but I got waylaid on the way. You, do you know what slowed him down? He got in a fight. I used to do that on the way home from school. So my dad said, the next time you get your glasses broken in a fight, you pay for them. But anyway, you know, the angel got in a fight. I know how that goes. You're saying, I'm actually getting a fight. Been there. Who was the angel fighting? He was fighting a creature, somebody he calls the Prince of Persia. And he said, I'd have got whooped if I didn't get some help from another angel. Now, what's that have to do with Revelation? Well, at the time all that happened, Daniel's vision, this fight with the angels and all, the Jews were ruled by Persia, which had just conquered Babylon. Jews were in exile in Babylon, remember. So the Jews are ruled by the Persians. But they weren't having any trouble with them. In fact, it was at just about that time that the Persians, new rulers of Babylon, allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem from the Babylonian exile and rebuild their city and temple. That was odd for a potentate in those days to do. Why was Persia so sympathetic to the Jews? Personally, I have a sneaking suspicion, I can't even say that, a sneaking suspicion that it was because the angels had whooped the prince of Persia in that battle. Folks, archaeologists have found records of Cyrus, the king of Persia at the time. One of them is a thing, it's a little bigger than a football and shaped kind of like a football with the ends chopped off, okay? It's called the Cyrus Cylinder. It has got cuneiform writing all around all the sides of it. It's been baked in the oven. And in that inscription, he tells why he sent people his predecessors, had the Babylonians, had captured back to their homelands and encouraged them to worship their own gods. Do you know why? what he said? He said his god Moloch told him to. Now, if Cyrus's god Moloch is really a front for some demonic power, which I think might truly be the case, and that demonic power gets his behind whipped, by a couple of God's angels who twist his arm up behind his back and say, okay, okay, you're done. Now you tell Cyrus to send the Jews home. 
He said, okay, 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 okay. There was a fierce battle in the spiritual realm that had no corresponding battle in the physical realm. In fact, it resulted in peace and blessing for the people of God. And I think some of the things we see in the book of Revelation might be like that. Now, admittedly, in all honesty, I know of no other Bible scholar besides me who has ever even mentioned that theory. So you don't have to agree with me. But all of that, however, still misses the point of Revelation chapter 5. The point here is that all the terrible things that John saw happened only when the Lamb opened the scroll. In other words, the point is the Lamb is in control. He has the authority to open this Pandora's box, so to speak, and let all that stuff out. And ultimately, the Lamb will win. No matter what bad things might happen in our world, they happen only when the Lamb says they can. No matter how awful they get, the Lamb is in control. Now, let me back off just a bit. I wish I had the time, we had the time, to study how his control relates to our daily lives, to individual events, but we don't. Suffice it to say, I do not think the Lamb controls all the minutiae of our day-by-day -day existence. He has set some principles in motion. There are things that God created in this world that will happen no matter what. If I drive too fast around a curve and crash my car, it's not because God willed for me to crash and reached down and made my tires slip. He didn't pour oil in front of them. I crashed because of my own foolishness and the physical principles of motion, momentum, and centrifugal force, forces which God himself and the Lamb included in their creation system. My wife was killed in an automobile accident, my first wife. On slick roads, I do not blame God at all. Slick roads caused that accident. Because there are principles in our world that God set in force, that things happen, sometimes because of our foolishness, sometimes because of random. But the overall scope of things, God is definitely in control. And the Lamb will win and is worthy to win because he created it all and put all those forces in motion. And so ultimately, God is in control whether he puts this little button for this little thing or not. If we go back to chapter 4, verse 11. It says, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created, and have their being. One of the reasons God is worthy, it says there, is because he's the creator. But don't forget the Bible also states in many places that it was through Jesus, the Lamb, that all this was created. Gospel of John, verses 1 and 2, where I suggested last week you start Bible reading consistently. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. Or Colossians 1, 15 and 16. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. You know, sometimes I fear we live so much in this world and spend so much time dealing with created things that we forget that it is the creator who is in control and we begin to worship the creation rather than the creator, as Paul says in Romans 1. Our school systems are geared to preparing a person for getting along in this world. The theory of evolution tends to promote creation to God status. New Age pantheism goes even further and says that God is in everything. All creation is God, Mother Earth, and all that stuff. All our business dealings are in this world, of course. So when we come to the meetings and activities of the church, do we have trouble lifting our eyes above this world to worship the Lamb? Do we spend all our time talking about our problems and those of our friends? Do we worry too much about whether my needs are being met? I have just one question. What do we bring for the Lord when we come here? 
The lamb who is in control, where does he fit in our lives and our life? One summer, I traveled most all summer with my father. I was 10 or 12. Dad was a professor at the Bible college and went lots of places. Uh, I was in three or four weeks of camp, and two revival meetings. I don't remember what all else. But I do remember one thing I learned that summer up in South Bend, Indiana, from a couple college girls home for the summer who thought it would be fun to take this, I think I was 10, this 10-year-old kid around and just show him a good time the week we were there while Dad was in a revival. don't remember their names, but, but I remember one thing they taught me. They taught me a little song. I've not heard anybody sing this song unless I taught it to them in the 60 years since. Let's talk about Jesus, the King of kings is he, the Lord of lords supreme through all eternity. The great I am, the way, the truth, the life, the door. Let's talk about Jesus more and more. Now somebody prove me wrong and you know that song. I got, well Sandra does of course because she's heard me say, okay, you guys had heard it. You don't happen to be from originally from around northern Indiana or southern Michigan, do you? Well, hey, somebody else did know it. That's wonderful. And that's, isn't the message of that song great? Let's talk about Jesus more and more. The point, that's the point of Revelation is the worship of the Lamb. He's the one who's control. He's the one who's worthy to open the scroll. We may not understand all the symbolism of the book, but we get that much. Back when I was in college, the Ozark Bible College did not have gymnasium facilities. And so we rented for the basketball team the local, local junior high school in that part of town, that part of Joplin, North Junior High School. And uh, that's where the team practiced and that's where they played their games. And of course, being a public school, always had to be a school employee there when the doors were open and somebody was doing that. Well, there's a story about just such an incident, and one old janitor had volunteered to be the one who would stay after hours and get the little extra pay and be there when the, when the seminary or Bible college team came to practice. And He would just sit in one corner of the gymnasium, wait for them to be through so he could lock up, and he often read his Bible. Well, one evening, he was reading away, and one of the players at a break came over to him and says, What you reading? He said, I'm reading a revelation. Well, this fellow in Bible college had just had a class on the book of Revelation. And he knew all the theories. He knew premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial, futurist, preterist, the whole nine yards. And he was still confused. So he thought he'd get this old guy and he says, do you understand what it means? And the old fellow says, sure. Well, the student was somewhat taken back. He says, okay, what does it mean? The old man says, it's simple. It means Jesus is going to win. I agree, but we must never forget where the emphasis in Christianity must be. It must be on the winner, not on winning. The lamb has triumphed. The lamb is worthy because he is the ultimate winner. But do you know something? The only reason he won is because he surrendered. The lamb is worthy because he was slain. And with his blood he purchased men for God. Back to our text. I said we're going to stay right there. That's different from what I've done the last two, isn't it? Chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. They sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Without him, we're refugees, folks. We've heard a lot about refugees the last couple of generations, you know. Cubans and Haitians who tried to make it to this country in small boats. Sudanese Christians in Darfur. Christians fleeing Iraq. Refugees running from the conflict in Syria and now from ISIS, ISIS in Iraq, that, whatever that group is. Who knows where else? People in nearly every land in our world have fled at one time or another with no place to go. Without Christ, that's what we are. Refugees. Drift in a sea of sin, ready to go under. A people without a country, without a place, without a name. 
with no hope, separated from God by our sin. We are the little street urchins, the orphan girl with dirt on her face and torn jeans and muddy shirt and tangled pigtails and tear-streaked face, playing in the gutters of our sin. But the king's son comes walking in the streets of our world, saw the little girl, took her and cleaned her up, gave her a beautiful white dress without a spot on it, helped her get her hair fixed, sat her at the head of the dinner table, fed her a lovely meal, looked into her eyes and says, when you grow up, will you marry me? We thought he was kidding, but he wasn't. He proved his love on Calvary. He loved the little girl. The church, us, gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water with the word, to present her to himself as a radiant bride without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Now he has gone away, but he's promised to come back and get us when we, his bride, have grown up. The street urchins that we are. We have no claim to fame, no beauty of our own, no reason to brag except we're going to marry the king. Now does the bride brag about her dress and her flowers and exclaim about the candles as she walks down the aisle? Not likely. Folks, I'll let you in on a secret of preaching. No idea how many weddings I did in 50 plus years. One time I did two in one day. One morning, one afternoon on a Saturday. Never saw an ugly bride, and not a single bride ever saw me. When she comes down the aisle, she doesn't see me. She doesn't have eyes for me. She's looking to the, the, the guy standing beside me about ready to pass out. <laughs> Do you know somebody wrote a song about that? Years ago, there was an old hymn written called The Sands of Time, about the passage of time. I understand it was Dwight L. Moody's favorite, if you know who Moody was. J.D. went to school that he started, and it's named after him. But anyway, you know this one? The sands of time are sinking. The dawn of heaven breaks. The summer morn I cried for. The fair sweet morn awakes. Dark, dark hath been the midnight, but day spring is at hand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Last verse is the one that talks about the bride. The bride eyes not her garments, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace. Not on the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand, the Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Folks, we must not forget who we are. We must for not forget whose we are. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, You are not your own. You're bought with a price. You know, even many of the plans used to teach us how to share our faith seem to put the emphasis in the wrong place. They start with all have sinned and end with what we must do to be saved with little talk about the Savior. Or they begin with God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and tell you how to come to God. But what do they say about the Lamb? I talked about this two or three weeks ago. A writer named Dwight Hervey Small wrote, Even our salvation is a means to the end that Christ might be enthroned as Lord of our lives. You know, we hear a lot about self-esteem these days, and I suppose it's proper for us to feel somewhat good about ourselves and our abilities. At least we shouldn't be so down on ourselves that we can't accomplish anything for the Lord. We have to remember that the important thing is not how I see myself or how I feel about myself, but how the Lamb sees me. He loves me. I'm part of his kingdom. He died for me. He even trusts me. Did you know that? One of my favorite passages in 2 Corinthians 4, 
where it talks about we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Are you a clay jar or a tin can? The clay jar back then was the equivalent of a tin can. What happens once they're used? They get thrown away or taken to the shop to use to wash paintbrushes in. <clears throat> you know, I may be nothing more than a clay pot and a cracked pot at that, but he trusted me to teach his word. God gave me a job to do something for him. Never forget, though, though we are the clay pots, he's the potter. Though we are citizens of the kingdom, he's the king. Though we are the priests who worship him, he is the God who is worshipped. We may be the height of creation ruling this world, but he's the creator sitting on his eternal heavenly throne. He is worthy because of who he is. He is worthy because of what he has done. He is worthy because of what he wants from us, our love and allegiance. He is the king. <clears throat> There's another song. You probably know why I love to sing, and sometimes music gets a point across like I can't, so put up with me, okay? It's a song I almost never hear. I didn't hear it often when we sang mostly from hymnals. It's not in many hymnals, and I understand why it's not easy to sing the key it's written in. This old bass can't even begin. I sing it down where, where I can sing it. <clears throat> but we ought to thrill with singing this. How many of you even know the song, Christ is King? I'll try to pitch it where I can sing it, okay? Come, friends, sing of a faith that's so dear to me, revealed through God's Son in Galilee. He brought peace on earth and goodwill to the sons of man. Go tell it to the world, her king reigns again. I am so happy in Jesus, captivity's captor is he. Angels rejoice when a soul saved, someday we like him shall be. Sorrow and joy have the same, Lord, valley of shadow shall sing. Death has its life, its door opens in heaven, eternally Christ is king. And the verses go through stories about the life of Christ, crucified on Calvary, resurrected, caught up into heaven, someday he's coming back, and that chorus, I am so happy in Jesus, captivity's captor is he. Angels rejoice when a soul saves, someday we like him shall be. Sorrow and joy have the same, Lord, valley of shadows shall sing. Death has its life, its door opens in heaven. Eternally, Christ is king. Without him, we're nothing. If that don't light your fire, your kindling's wet. <laughs> but with him, there's no limits to who we are. Give me a minute. The lamb is worthy to get it all. Power and wealth and wisdom and strength and glory and honor, all our praise. I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, ten thousand times ten thousands. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that's in them singing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshipped. Now what's all that mean to us? How's that work out a week from Thursday? Well, it simply means that he deserves all the credit, all the honor, all the authority, all the interest in our lives. We need to decide, are we going to chase the world's fame and riches or honor him? Now, I know, I know, most of us don't think we have a chance at all that stuff. Would you ever daydream about it, even a little? 
Then you ever think about how much we need to honor him without being reminded by a preacher? The lamb alone is worthy. He deserves to be in charge. I'm going to say it anyway. It's not in the notes. <clears throat> I don't know why the Lord called me to minister to troubled churches. Four out of the five full-time ministries I had, where I wasn't working another job, preaching to churches from about 100 average sentences to 400, I followed a preacher who was either fired or strongly pressured into leaving and picked up the pieces. Often, often, most often, the difficulties in churches come because somebody doesn't like how things are going and they try to take charge. Folks, more devastation has been done, more havoc been, has been wrought on the bride of the Lamb, the church of God, because so many have tried to make a name for themselves to get some praise from men to say, I'm in charge here. I know what's best. And you know something else? There's no end to the good you can do if you don't care who gets the credit. There's no limit to the heartache we will cause ourselves and those around us if we insist on personal recognition and power and control. So how can we give him, how can we hand him all the honor and praise without dragging it back to ourselves? How? By giving him everything we have. And I'm not talking about money. If we deny ourselves and do everything we do as unto him, rather than my goals are his goals, rather than my credit, it's his credit, then we will get all the glory even if no one else notices. He will get all the glory even if no one else notices. Guys, working in a hardware store and teaching those five, second, and third grade boys every Sunday morning in Sunday school or children's church may not seem like much, but it brings glory to God if you do it for him. It may seem that job you do, kids, for the little lady down the street who needs help with her yard is totally insignificant, but if you do it for the love of God, it can bring glory to him. Gals? Teaching two- and three-year-olds may not bring international recognition. But the Lord knows. The story is told of a very large festival orchestra. You know where they bring several orchestras together and they bring in the big-name guest conductor. and They're getting ready for this big, uh, you know, countrywide concert. And, and there's dozens and dozens of violins and scores of trumpets and and on the bass vials and the timpani, the kettle drums and all this stuff. And, and uh, one piccolo. You know what a piccolo is? It's a flute that wasn't pre-shrunk. And anyway, got out in the rain and not much more than a tin whistle. Well, anyway, in this particular orchestra with all the dozens and dozens of instruments, there's one piccolo. And although the various sections passed around the theme of the piece they were playing, and most of the first chair players had at least of measure or two of solo to carry the theme. The piccolo had nothing, only a little twiddly-dee-dee-dee, twiddly-dee-dee. And it came when the whole orchestra is just blasting away. You know, the trumpets are trumming and the violins are singing and the bass files are droning away. And, and the piccolo player just decided to give it up. Nobody pays attention, nobody hears, nobody knows a thing. So right in the middle he quit. The conductor goes, stop, 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 stop. He taps his baton on it. He says, there's the piccolo. Sometimes in life, I'm sure you feel like that piccolo player. Nobody notices. Nobody cares. It won't make any difference if I quit. But the conductor of all the world is listening. And he'll hear. He'll say, there's that piccolo. You see, giving glory to the Lamb is not just saying, praise the Lord. Giving him honor is a lot more than praying, hallowed be your name. Giving him honor and praise and glory and power means subjugating every dream or plan or goal we ever had to him and letting him lead the way, letting him take the credit, letting him get all the praise. And that's a pretty good definition of self-denial, by the way. If we give him the glory and don't expect any recognition or fame for ourselves, it will matter to him. And that's what matters. <clears throat> I have a confession to make. 
One of the hardest parts of preaching is learning to preach for the Lord and not for the compliments. And when I preached for you folks the first time three weeks ago, I had to pray real hard that I was preaching for him and not so I could just stand up there and you people could see, I'll let Benny Wilson will make a good preacher someday. That's what they said about me when I went back and preached when I was in college for the church my dad had preached at when I was in grade school. Well, Benny Wilson might make a good preacher someday. I did. I really had to pray, Lord, I got a fight going on here. You see, if we're ready to give credit to the Lamb to honor Him, it will matter little whether we make a big splash or get any praise, or ever have our name in the paper. What matters is whether we can sit down at the end of the day and say, I tried my best to live this day for the Lamb of God. What does it matter if we get any praise? What possible matter is it even if we live or die? Even if our spirits, rather than living on with him forever, what if our spirits should disintegrate and disappear into nothing, not even a memory? What if nothing of me should remain through all eternity? So what? not that big a deal and neither are you (laughs) but if we have served in such a way that someone somewhere came to know Jesus learn of his word or in some way experienced his love through us and because of it gave glory to the lamb that's what matters we serve the Lord who's worthy of praise and that's enough and you know something that's one of the great joys of Christianity if we can only catch it you don't have to be smart or great or rich, or important, or praised. You don't have to be able to perform great feats of skill, or daring, or live a perfect life. You don't have to make a big impression on anyone. You don't have to be able to stand up and preach a sermon. You don't have to live in a big town or work with a big church. You just have to be willing to follow him wherever he would lead you. Find some little something that you can do for him, and do it with all your might, and enjoy it along the way. Or do it even if you don't enjoy it. When I was in college, I had a classmate named John Fulford. John was from Cape Town, South Africa. Now, this was back in the dark ages, you know, before email and Skype and the Internet and all that stuff. I mean, all our phones were hooked to the wall. John came from Cape Town to Joplin, Missouri to go to Bible college because he wanted to be a preacher. And some missionary over there, he wasn't a black man, he was a white man from Cape Town. Some preacher over there, a missionary he had gotten acquainted with, he thought Ozark sounded like the place to go. Thing is, he had already had two or three years in the university in Cape Town, and he left a fiancé behind. Elaine was her name. He came to college for four years in Joplin, never got a chance to go home because it was really expensive to get from Joplin to Cape Town. He did not see her. He only talked to her occasionally. He wrote her nearly every day, but it might be days and days and days and days before his letter would reach her and their letters kept crossing like this in the mail. One day we were sitting around in a dorm room. I didn't live in that dorm. I lived at home since dad was a preacher and that was the professor and that was cheaper. But I'd sit around the dorm sometimes in the evening and talk to the guys. And one evening I was sitting in the dorm room where John was as a little older than the other students, three or four years older, was kind of the top man in a dorm that was really a big old house with eight or ten guys living in it. And he was kind of the dorm dad. Why uh, this subject came up, I don't know, as to why he could do it and how he felt he could do it. And he quoted a poem. And I made him quote it again so I could write it down. He said this was his goal. He eventually went home, married Elaine, and went to be preaching in New Zealand, which is even further away, but that's where her grandparents were from. Anyway, this is John's poem. Just a path that is sure, thorny or not, and a heart honest and pure, keeping the path that is sure, that be my lot. Just plain duty to know, irksome or not, and truer and better to grow through doing the duty I know, that I have sought. Just to keep battling on, weary or not, sure of the right alone, as I keep battling on, true to my thought. That's how we honor the Lamb, by battling for and with him 
and realizing all that matters is that he be honored by what we do, all we are, and all we ever hope to become. I know I'm running just a little bit long, but I want to close with one story. This was a column printed in the back page of Eternity Magazine in January of 1967, a long time ago. For obvious reason, the author's name is withheld, but it is a true story, and I will close with it. I'm just going to read it to you. Professor in a seminary writes, I was quite frankly frightened when he came into my office in the seminary where I was an instructor. His eyes held a wild expression. I noted he had locked the door as he entered. He burst out crying immediately and sobbed, Somebody has to pray with me. Somebody has to pray with me. I answered quietly, I'll pray with you. But why don't you just sit down and cry it out? It will help you. He sat down and cried convulsively for a long time. Then he began again, Somebody has to pray with me. Somebody has to pray with me. I answered, I'll pray with you. Tell me what it is you want to pray about. And then he told me about his visit to three doctors. Each had advised him to go home and rest. The last had told him frankly in answer to his question his trouble was schizophrenia. I knew little of his background except that there were three retarded children in the family. He was a bright student, not brilliant, but doing more than passable work. We talked quietly for a while, and then I asked him a question I wondered when I asked it if I could have been able to answer in the affirmative. If God could be more honored by your illness than by your health, would you be willing to accept even insanity? He sobbed convulsively again, loudly and almost uncontrollably for a while, then was quiet for a long time. Finally, the answer came almost in a whisper, yes, if God can be more honored by illness than by health, I'll accept even insanity. Then we prayed. And such a prayer of submission, of complete and unconditional surrender, of dedication I have never before or since heard. He walked out of my office tall and erect and calm. Two students who had waited outside the door for two hours drove him to his farm home. I heard nothing more about him for a few months, and then I learned he was preaching at a small church in the country. He preached at one or two other small churches after that. Then he had a call to a city church, where for several years he conducted a radio program and was a successful pastor. He never suffered a recurrence of mental illness. I have always believed, that author wrote, that God honored his complete submission with the cure, and I always think of that boy when I hear the song, Not what I wish to be, nor where I wish to go, for who am I that I should choose my way? The Lord shall choose for me, Tis better far, I know, so let him bid me go or stay. Folks, the Lamb is worthy of all our praise, all our work, all our love, all our lives. He alone must be at the center of all we are and all we ever hope to be. Dear God, oh, 